0: All right, please remain standing for just a moment as we read the text from Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verses 20 to 29. And uh, Mr. Marshall will be glad to know that I count them properly this time. There's ten of them. And so, the ten verses we'll be reading, Proverbs 15, 20 through 29. A wise son makes a glad father. Sorry, a wise son makes a father glad. But a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. The way of life Winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. The thoughts of the wicked are an, aban- are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Please be seated. All right, so Proverbs 15, verses 20 to 29, titled this Joy and Consequences. There's a relationship between what we find our joy in and the consequences that we receive. And so... As we look at the beginning of this, the whole section is really about the consequences of uh, righteousness and wickedness. And then it's broken into little sections. Verse 24 uh, is the bridge text, and it looks backward and forward. It connects the two sections there. There's a little chiasm at the end, and the beginning part uh, is an interconnected section as well. So we'll look at the first section, verses 20 to 23. So This is about the joy in education, and that's uh, both the process, but also the benefits of education in this life. We're talking about true education, not just do you have a degree, not how many credits have you taken at a university, but the question is, what truths have you taken in? And so parents are responsible as the principal teachers of people as they're being raised, and so we are reminded... For those who are the teachers, that there's a joy in that process. And so verse twenty says, A wise son makes a glad, sorry, makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Now, there's a verse that's very similar to this. Proverbs 10, 1 says, A wise son makes a glad father. Um, and then it also says, But a foolish son is the grief of his mother. And so the similarity there, right, these are very, very similar verses, uh, but the difference is between the foolish man despising his mother versus the foolish son giving a grief to his mother. And so there's also this change of the wording from man to son, right? Son is in chapter 10, verse 1. And, and notice that this chapter 10 verse 1. This is the beginning of the collection that we're in. This is the beginning of the Proverbs of Solomon. So we've gone through the first nine chapters. Remember that was the introductory section. And we got into the second collection. and The second collection is the Proverbs of Solomon. And it says a wise son makes a glad father but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. And so this is a reminder to teach your children but it's also a reminder to those being taught to be wise for the happiness of, of your parents but also for yourself. And if you're wise, then you're going to make your parents happy. You're going to raise your children wisely. You'll have joy in your life, and you will have the joy of seeing your children walk in the truth. And so there's this connection that's bridging across the span of life uh, that this proverb allows for. But the change of a, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. When you talk about a son... You think about someone who is in the house, someone who's an heir. And the idea, part of what happens here is a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man, as opposed to a son, the same person has gone from being a son to just be considered a man. And so that points to the idea of losing your inheritance. then your foolishness that you're just a man to the household that you were once a son in. And so the foolish man, the foolish son, he, he brings grief to his mother, and then the foolish man also being outside of the home, he hates his mother. The despising of the mother. Despising is is seeing little value in a thing or no value, not caring for the good of that thing. It's hating. A foolish son hates his mother. He's not seeking the long-term happiness or joy of the mother. He's bringing her grief. And grief comes when we get things that we think are a loss, when we receive things that we think are bad. And so if we are foolish, we bring grief to our parents. We bring grief to them, and we seek their harm. We are taking from them the joy of seeing their children walk in the truth. And so this despising of the mother is a call to think about the unnaturalness, the the wickedness of being foolish, the wickedness of being foolish and how it results in a despising of the One who gave you life, who brought you into the world, who has raised you. Now, part of that examination is to consider verse 21. And you start to wonder, am I the type that brings grief to my mother? And father, the type that would bring a hatred or despising to the parent. Well, verse 21 says, Folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment, but a man of understanding walks uprightly. We have movement from the joy of the parents to the joy of the child. What does the child? What does the individual take joy in? So, stop for a second. What do you take joy in? What are the things that you find joy in? What's the connection between walking uprightly and folly and joy? If you walk uprightly, why would you go through the trouble of trying to carefully consider what is right and to apply the law of God? It's because you think that it will bring joy. It's because you think that it will bring what is ultimately good. That And having what is ultimately good will bring greater joy as opposed to chasing after immediate gratification, chasing after the short-term and temporary pleasures of sin, Right, the putting away of the things that bring immediate enjoyment for the sake of getting long-term enjoyment. Folly is joy to him who is destitute of understanding. This isn't just some absurdity, right? We see this, that there's all around us the desire for immediate gratification, the desire to get pleasure now, the desire to avoid the pains of doing what is right, and so this makes sense. There are so many short-term signals that say, do what is foolish, don't do what is wise, because it's so much easier in the short-term, and so that short-term enjoyment is why folly is a joy. To him who is destitute of discernment. But the man of understanding walks uprightly. We always do what we most want to do. If you walk uprightly, it's because you think wisdom will bring joy, it's because you think what is right will ultimately bring more joy. If we look, if if we're candid, we know oftentimes doing what is right creates short-term difficulties. It simply does. And that's true of almost any profitable work. You are giving up some sort of short-term enjoyment for the sake of a long-term benefit. Wisdom gives joy to both the child and the parent when it's possessed by the child. So think about this. We are all children of somebody. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And you will enjoy it. And so will your parents. But folly gives grief both to the child and the parent when it's possessed by the child. So we have to ask ourselves, we have to consider for ourselves, what is folly? What is good? We have to stop and think, am I pursuing folly? Do I find folly a joy? Or do I want to carefully apply what the law of God teaches? Is the law of God coherent? Does it make sense? Does it actually tell me the right way to go? And so, One of the things that happens is we all tend, if we're by ourselves, to pick things that are shorter term, that are benefits in the short term. We pick the things that are uh, going to create short-term enjoyment. And there's a need for counsel. And the counsel, the idea of getting counsel, of getting advice, of looking to people with wisdom to talk to them, that process, that habit begins at home. And so the idea of having a household where there is discussion where there is debate, where there is a dialogue, where there is consideration about what to do, is necessary to help from the youth to go forth looking for counsel. Verse 22, without counsel, plans go awry. The literal wording there is, uh, the thwarting of plans is without counsel. Right? So in other words, if you want your plans to be thwarted, don't get counsel. So think about this. Young people in particular, right? What's the desire? The desire is, I just want to do what I want to do. I want to be left alone. I don't want to to talk to my parents about it. If I talk to my parents about it, they're going to tell me all the reasons what I'm doing is wrong. They're going to tell me all these lessons they learned. And I don't want to hear any of that because I just want to do this thing. And it's going to work. Why? Because I think it will. This is is what we want to do. We just want to go, if I just want this thing enough, I can avoid talking to anybody because that's one of the obstacles by right? talking to people about it, talking to the wise about it, is an obstacle to getting to what I want. That is the frame of mind that we look at this. But in reality, the goal that we have, the desire for joy, the desire to have what is good, to prosper and be at peace, to have plenty and long life, right, to have honor amongst men, these goals are best advanced with Counsel. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. The literal wording is interesting. Uh, in the multitude of counselors, they are established. That kind of sounds like plural plans. Like if you have lots of counselors and you have lots of plans, then generally they'll be established. In the Hebrew, what it does is it has plural for counselors and it has singular for plans. And so the idea here that's a way in, in Hebrew grammar of being able to sort of say each one will succeed. Like not just generally but sort of this idea of if you get counsel you can expect all of your plans to succeed. So that's a very strong language. It's, it's something that you know you read that and you go I don't want to say that. I know lots of people get advice and then particular instances of their plans don't work out. But the emphasis is there to try to say this is the best way to advance the success of your plans is to get counsel. So without counsel is how you thwart plans. In a multitude of counselors, each plan is established. Now, the principal counsel we need to get is counsel from the Word of God. We need to have the Word of God, the counsel of God, stored in our hearts. And then we need to find counselors who are concerned about what the Bible says. This is very important. It is very easy to find counselors. Everybody wants to tell you what to do. Everyone wants to tell you what to do. Right? You can find so many books that will tell you what to do. The overwhelming majority of new published books are telling you what to do. Self-help is a very big category. The 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 discussion about what it is that you need to do for your diet or what you need to do to look better and get that man or whatever the thing is, right? There's there's so much publishing of people telling you what to do. And stories are really people telling you what they think the good life is. Right? Their story world presents for you a hero who exemplifies what they think is good, and the consequences of what happens to their characters is them telling you, here's how you should view the world and the expectations you should have. It's easy to find people who want to tell you what to do. But who are the counselors that care about your well-being and have biblical wisdom? If a person doesn't know what the Bible has to say about a subject and they're giving you advice, they're just making it up. They don't know what the Bible says about the subject. They're just making it up. Now you can hear people just make stuff up and they can remind you of useful things. And you need to test it by the Bible. And so you can hear advice from technical experts who are not Christians. And they can tell you if you plug this into that, this thing will work. But they're not going to be able to tell you very well the ethics of how to use the thing. And so there's a difference between technical expertise for an art, a techne, versus what ought to be done, what the goals are that should be had, the values to apply. So if you don't want your plans to work out, make sure to not get counsel. If you want your plans to be established, have a multitude of counselors. Now, how much counsel? Because like, we go, oh, there's so much to do. I don't have time to talk about everything. Like, I don't need to get counsel about which sandwich to put in my box. Right? So how much counsel? Okay. So the question to ask yourself is how important is this? How much wisdom do I have already from previous study on this? Have I had counsel about these things? Have I dealt with this a lot already? How clear is the problem and the solution? Do I have reasons why I'm unsure about it? How complex is the situation? How many variables are there? How many places am I just kind of assuming stuff and guessing? How up-to-date is my information? How many people are involved in this function? How many people do I have to work through? Are you, are you working through people who report to you? Are, you? are you dealing with subordinates? Are you giving orders to your son? Are you giving orders to your wife? Are you, are you giving orders to people in an organization that work for you? You have to examine... Those elements of it. The more complex, the bigger deal, right? The, the less you've dealt with it, the more you feel like you're kind of just assuming stuff and guessing, and the less up-to-date your information is, the more you desperately need to go and get counsel from other people. And so there are, there are factors to consider there, but in general, if you're dealing with something important, you should have the tendency towards getting counsel. And if you're married, your chief counselor is your spouse. The two of you need to talk through things. Now, verse 23. You know, if you're if you're in your parents' household, your primary counselor is your parents. A man has joy, verse 23, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth. And a word spoken in due season. How good it is. So we, we start out with the wise son and how the wise son causes the parents to have joy. How if you have, if you have joy in folly, then you don't have understanding. You don't know how things really work. If you have understanding, you apply the law of God, and as a result... You are walking uprightly. And so, how do we become wise sons? How do we avoid having joy in folly? Well, we should engage in the dialogue of counsel, discussion, debate, trying to gain understanding through discussion with those who are wiser than us. And one of the benefits of that, when you're getting counsel, oftentimes you're giving the opportunity to the other to give a good answer a word spoken in due season you're going to somebody who has wisdom stored up in their heart already and you're asking them for that wisdom and you're creating opportunity for them to speak that word in due season and when they speak that word it gives joy to them it gives joy to you and in Perceiving the answer and applying it and having that good counsel to be able to go forward, there's a joy for the parent who gets to observe as well. And here's the other thing. When you get an answer that you were looking for, that you highly prized, that you needed an answer from somebody and you received that answer in the moment when you needed it, the probability of you remembering that and the deliverance that that piece of wisdom provided is high. And that will be ready for you. It will be a word that is ready for you to be able to give to others. And so by seeking the counsel of your parents and seeking the counsel of the wise, you give them the ability to have the joy of giving that good answer, and you are preparing yourself to be able to have that joy of the good answer. This is one of the attributes of of truth, of wisdom, that as we gain it, it increases, right? The other person doesn't lose it. And when we give it, it increases. We don't need to lose it. In fact, our knowledge of it increases, and so does the one who gave it to us. And so, that process of increasing in the possession of what is good, of wisdom. So, a man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season how good it is. So, if you have wisdom... Then you have counsel for yourself and for others. Wisdom is more valuable then and brings honor, power, pleasure, money, and the resolution of conflict. It gives all those things. It's better than those things, and it gives those things. Those are the things when you're trying to figure out. That when, you, when you're really worried that your honor is going to be undermined or that you have an opportunity to gain a great honor, that's when you ask for advice. When you have this time when your power, your ability to do things is under threat or you have the ability to grow in it that's when you likely go to get counsel when there's this thing that you've been waiting for and you're worried about messing it up and not getting it the great enjoyment of this thing right that's when you're likely to go and ask for help same with money the same when you have a fight with someone you care about those are likely times to go and ask for counsel and wisdom helps you to get and to preserve those things there's a pleasure in receiving that answer. When you have one of those things, they're in danger, and you receive that answer, there's a joy in hearing it. There's a pleasure in having it, the pleasure in giving. One of the things that happens, and when you get good counsel, it's valuable to do this, there is a pleasure in being acknowledged as having the answer and having brought about a change of course from the counsel that you've offered. Right? Isn't it a satisfying thing when you give good counsel to someone and they actually take it? And you go, praise the Lord. Are you joy in seeing that. When somebody acknowledges it, when they don't just do it, but they even acknowledge it, and they say, you're right. I should do that. I'm going to do that. Thank you. Right? That is a rare thing. It's a very rare thing for somebody to acknowledge that you're right and for them to say they're going to do the thing that you've advised and then to do it. Now, it's way better if they kind of don't acknowledge it and they still do it than if they don't do it. That's way better. But the best is when all those things occur. And if you do that, do you see how that would increase the criticism caravans? If you do that, do you see how that would increase the willingness of people to give you counsel, that you'd be a joyous person to give counsel to? you're increasing the rewards for giving counsel. And so, when you receive counsel and you respond in that way, you encourage the continuation of counsel, and you have the opportunity to get that as well when you're passing counsel along. And by the way, if we exemplify that, we're more likely to see other people do that to us. Now, there's a pleasure of seeing your reputation and thus your value increased by your giving of answers. A man is valued by what other people say of him. So if you give wise counsel and everybody goes, "Well, wow, that was wise. And talk about it and they share that as a good report. That increases your value. It increases your marketability. It increases the money you can make, the positions you can get, the willingness with which other people will do things with you. Those are all powerful things. There's a pleasure of peace. Shalom as a result of applying the answer. And so you get the joy of having received counsel and then doing what you've been advised to do and seeing that peace go into place. Having the right word at the right time can be monumental. For want of a good counselor, many a war has started. And because of good counselors, many wars have been avoided and many wars have been won. A person who has the right thing to say at the right time can dramatically shift the course of human events. And so being able to speak ready words is very important. The time of learning and discussions when you have leisure are valuable for times when words need to be said. So this idea of a word spoken in due season, or in its time. How good it is. And look, that exclamation. You know, exclamation marks are relatively rare in the Bible. Right? This is an English translation. Right? There's not an exclamation mark in the Hebrew. But that's a proper reality in terms of the interpretation. This is an exclamatory statement. How good it is. This reality that's speaking the right thing at the right time an apple of gold in a setting of silver. There's an emphasis on the value of right words in the right time. So in order to be able to do that, getting counsel supplies you with that ability. One of the reasons you want to get counsel is because it helps you. You get the wisdom of the wise around you and you are able to take those words and to remember them. Dialogue helps you to remember. So counsel is a great place to be able to do that. And for those who are giving counsel, make sure it's a discussion. Because if you just talk, the memorability of it, the shutting downness, the unwillingness to engage and argue, makes it so it's far less memorable and far less likely to be heard. So, for those of you who are thinking about all the people you don't want to ask counsel from, wise people store up knowledge but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. There's a value to storing up knowledge that makes it so you can give an answer in season. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Studying how to answer. That word studying can be translated pondering, meditating. Just think about how to answer. That allows for a ready word. In times of strife, the right word is often gentle. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And one of the amazing things about the words of the wise is the words of the wise are often like a hammer hitting the nail on the head. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 to 14 says for us, And moreover, Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails." The only way to get a nail-driven in really effectively, get it, like, well-driven, is to hit it on the head. Words of the scholars, the words of the masters of assemblies, is literally the language. So, like, the guys that would be elected to be moderators of presbyteries. This is the idea. This is the words of councils. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the masters of assemblies are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. That's because he leads the church into all truth. And so there is this pulling together. The words of the wise are the words of the masters of assemblies given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. right, The words of God and the words that are pulled together by the wise and the masters of assemblies be admonished by these words. Of making many books there is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Right? There's a context to that verse. The point is, you need to study. You need to study the right words. Find the words of God and look at what the masters of ecclesiastical assemblies have pulled together. But those are the places to look first. Because there are so many things to write and so many things to read. But I'll tell you what, when you look at what the larger catechism had to say about the Eighth Commandment, it would be hard to find a more clear, concise, and thorough explanation of the duties of not stealing. Those masters of assemblies put together words that were hit right in the head. Further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books, there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Study the things that are going to be the most efficient. Study the scriptures and study what has been captured in the councils of the church. The Westminster Assembly has pulled together, assembled the best of what has been done by the church in its history. And so you look at that, and that's how you get mature. That's how you get to the place of being a father, right? is by studying those. That's the most efficient way to be able to grow, is to study the scriptures and to be able to study what has been put together there in the confessional standard. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, that's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. And it's a book where he's searching and considering how do you get what's good. That's the whole point. Ecclesiastes is this wandering around and looking for what's good. And he finds folly in all of its categorical forms and shows why all of them are not satisfying. But he shows how God is satisfying. How God is lasting. How the purpose of man is to know God and apply that knowledge. The words of the wise are like hitting the nail on the head. We want to get counsel. We want to study. We want to consider how to answer so that we can say the right thing in the future, but also so we can apply it. All right, so verse 24 is the bridge. The way of life winds upward for the wise that he may turn away from hell below. The funny thing is, this verse is in all the manuscripts. theological liberals want to say that this verse isn't in the original text. Why? The reason is because it is very clear about the resurrection. So the Sadducees hated this verse. And this is one of the reasons that they said that the book of Proverbs was not authoritative. Okay. So this idea of the way of life winds upward for the wise that he may turn away from Sheol below. Turning away from the grave, this points to resurrection. Okay, so so this, this verse is a resurrection text. It presents the joy of life that are given, the joys of life that are given as greater than the than the the joys of sin. But also, there's a greater joy of everlasting life. So the way of life avoids the way of everlasting death, as the wise see and then turn to avoid downward trajectory and death. Okay, so scholars are going to strip this out of the Bible because they want to blame the Pharisees for adding it to fight the Sadducees, but there's no textual evidence for this position. They're just making it up. They just literally take this verse and say, this is too useful for the resurrection position, so it must have been added. So the funny thing is, it's also not only just in the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it's also in the Syriac and the Targum. So it's just it's, it's in the translations. So there's, there's just a, an overwhelming abundance. Liberal scholars like to just make things up and that's why when you hear claims and they say things like, you know, Jesus never whatever, and you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say, they just make things up. Right? They just make things up. Liberal scholars just make stuff up. I've run into liberal scholars that say things like, you know, Paul never asserts that Jesus is God. Like, you can find Paul talking about Jesus being God in several places. Right? You'll have, there are no assertions about you know, uh, the idea that Jesus is God in other books, in John's books. John's books are abundantly clear. Remember chapter 20, verse 28? Liberal scholars just make stuff up. They do. That makes total sense. They don't believe in God. So they don't really think there's any consequences to lying. And it's a very popular thing to say negative things about the Bible. And nobody cares. Nobody challenges them. And people haven't read the Bible. So this is in scholarship. And it's in universities. And it's all over the place. You run into this kind of nonsense where people just make up things to attack the Bible. And so if you look into them, right? never, never take this by themselves. Go look into it. And you will overwhelmingly find the absurdity of the claims and just go, how does this person get by with this? How is this published in a book? How does this person say this in a lecture and not get called out and lose their job? The way of life winds upward for the wise that he may turn away from Sheol below. So it looks like they prosper for now, these liberal scholars. But they have to deal with Sheol. They can try to take the verse out. Sheol's still there. And they're not turning from it. They're twisting the Word of God. So the way of life winds upward for the wise. There's a double meaning in this verse. It's pointing to, one, the way of life. In your life, if you're wise, you will wind upward. There will be this upward trajectory in your life, and you will have joy from the wisdom you have. And that avoids Sheol. That avoids the grave that avoids death. So that trajectory of sanctification is a part of the benefit of the wise and the joy that comes in this life. Now the next set of five verses, twenty-five through twenty-nine, this talks about the ends. Okay, so the other one was about the process. This one's about the ends. Uh, the righteous are preserved and the wicked are eliminated. There's the Cliff's Notes and spoiler. Verse twenty-five. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. All right, so this one's a chiasm. Okay, so A is going to be verse 25. A prime is going to be verse 29. So look at those for a second. Okay. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And then verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Okay, So there's this, um, there's this consequence for righteousness and a consequence for sin. And so we're going to look at that in more detail, but you can see how those two relate. The next two, 26 and 28. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. Verse 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. So both of those, you have thought of the wicked, then thought of the righteous, and then then you have the words, um, pure words that are pleasant to God, and then you have the mouth of the wicked pouring forth evil. So you have thoughts and words, right? So you see those that structure there. Then verse 27, he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. This is the center verse. This is the idea of the short-term gain leading to long-term harm and the short-term loss of gain leading to long-term benefit. Okay, so that's the center verse and the other ones are sort of Coming out from there, and they lead into that conclusion. So, verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. So, the proud versus the widow. The widow is a humble station. The widow is likely to be weak, the widow is likely to be oppressed. These are the themes for widows in the Bible. So, the proud, on the other hand, right, that's a humble station. The proud are proud, they're not humble. And this, is, this is the point of, con- of comparison or contrast. So God destroys, the literal Hebrew is that tears away the house of the proud. Tears away the house of the proud. The house, th- this is the household. The proud loses the house, loses the household. This is the heart of your possessions. Right? The, the household, the house itself, the heart of your possessions, even the people of your household. On the other side, the widow who, widow doesn't have a man to protect her. widow doesn't have a man to protect the house. A widow is in a situation where you would say, it's likely that she's going to be oppressed, it's likely that she's not going to be able to maintain an estate. Well, the God, will, God will establish her. The literal Hebrew again is sets in place. Sets in place the edges of the possession. So this, this idea of He will establish the boundary of the widow. The boundaries are on the edges. Hey, we talked about landmarks this morning. Remember the idea of moving landmarks as being a way of stealing? Who do you think, if you were greedy, godless, and you had a boundary of your own territory, butting up against another territory, and you go, you know, that territory has a widow who can barely manage her estate, and she doesn't have time to come and check the edges of the territory... This is an easy target for me to move the landmark. You get there and you can't move it because the Lord has established it. And I'm joking, it's a memorable thing. I mean, perhaps the Lord did that to somebody. But this idea that you aren't going to be able to take away even the edges, the fringes of the humble's possession, the meek will inherit the earth. The, the boundary is set by God, the boundary is guarded by God. If you try to steal from those who are weak, try to oppress those who are weak, God will avenge. And so, that this threat, when you see an opportunity to be able to steal easily, you must remember that God sees it, and God establishes the boundary of the widow. And if you think, if you have the conceit of believing you can get away with it, you must remember that the Lord will destroy the house of the proud. The heart of your possession, but God will protect the, hint, the, the very edges, the fringes of the possession of the humble. Now, verse 26 The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. Now, the literal Hebrew there is the pleasant words are pure. I think that's a way better translation. Let me explain why. So, if we read it that way, this verse says, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. But the pleasant words are pure. The the pleasant words for whom? The the words that are pleasant to the Lord. The, The thoughts that are an abomination to God are the thoughts in the minds of the wicked. But the words that are pleasant to the Lord are pure words. Therefore, make sure your thoughts are pure and make sure your words are pure. That word for pure is the word that's normally translated for like ceremonial cleanness, or ceremonial purity. It's this idea of, of sort of, uh, you could even say yeah, almost kosher. right? This idea that there's a cleanness to the words that are pleasant to the Lord. And so, we're told in Psalm 119 where to get those pure words. The Word of God. And so, we've been told to go to the words of the wise, and we're getting the words of God, and the words of God are the pure words. Now, Our hearts are the things that produce our thoughts and words. Thoughts that are abominable to God are present in the minds of the wicked, and their wickedness comes from their thoughts, their unbelief. Words that are pleasing to God are pure. Pure words should be pleasing to us. If somebody gives you counsel, and it's from the law of God, and you don't like it, you are displeased with it, then what you need to realize is, Wait a second, I am finding pure words unpleasant. Which means I am pleased with the opposite, the thing that is not pure. And so I should call us to stop. Whenever you find anything in the Word of God to be unpleasant, you need to stop dead in your tracks and figure out what is wrong with you. That's the response. So we find things in the Word of God that we don't like. And that's a sign that there's something wrong with our preferences. Now, some of those things are things that we find hard, like, you know, the conquest of the promised land and imprecatory psalms and whatever. Those are things that are hard. So we go, why don't I understand this? What's, what's wrong with me? And you try to figure it out. You find doctrines you don't like, you don't like predestination a lot of the time. What's wrong with me? Let me figure this out. If the Bible teaches this. Let me figure out what it's saying and how it's right. And so you go to the scriptures and you figure out what is this saying? Where am I wrong? And we need to believe that our preferences of what is pleasant are not as authoritative as the word of God. So the heart of the righteous... I'm sorry, verse 27. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. So this idea of... Earlier on we talked about the the widow's boundary being protected. One of the ways you could try to steal a boundary from a widow is by moving the landmark and then having a lawsuit about it and then trying to take the land. And then you this other guy goes, you know, come on. This is a widow. And you go, I'll tell you what, Bob. How about I slide you 10 $100 bills and you shut up. And he goes, make it twenty dollars bills and you get a deal. That's what happens in courts in most countries. And if you think it never happens here, You're kidding yourself. We still have humans as judges. And so this idea of taking bribes to oppress the widow, the widow doesn't have the same amount of money that the oppressor has to bribe a judge. And if she's a righteous widow, she's not going to. So this idea of the poor or the weak, the oppressed, being oppressed through the use of bribes to use the legal system to take things. He who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. One of the ways you can steal from the boundaries of the widow is by taking a bribe to participate in the theft of that property. So if you're a judge that sides in favor of the oppressor and you're taking profit to do so, you're obviously participating in the gains of that wrongdoing. And if you think that's going to build your house, you are wrong. If you participate in taking from the edges of a widow, the Lord sees it and he will bring trouble on your house. He will destroy your house. He will tear it from you. And so this idea that you can greedily gain is a delusion. Every sin is like this. We think we can do this sin. We will enjoy it. We will get some benefit from it. We'll get popularity, honor, whatever. Whatever the thing is, by doing this sin, I will gain this thing, and it's a delusion. He who hates bribes will live. The devil offers all sorts of bribes. Having contentment with lawful gain brings peace and life. Hating bribes brings peace and life. The devil bribes the people of God with trinkets of short-term pleasure at the high cost of trouble. Every sin you've ever committed is because you accepted some bribe from the devil. And you thought, this thing is worth it. Verse 28. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. The heart of the righteous studies how to answer to so how he has acceptable thoughts. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. He has unacceptable thoughts. Words that are pleasant to God are pure. They're clean. Those are acceptable words. Words that come from the mouth of the wicked are evil. Those are unacceptable words. So here's that. Those two parts of the chiasm being contrasted with each other. So If you study, if you ponder how to answer, then you can answer quickly and not give a rash answer. There's there's all these warnings about not giving rash answers, but when you've thought about it and you know the answer, you can answer quickly. You can have a ready answer, but not be rash. Hard and long thinking about what to say and how to say it. That is what the wise do. Hard and long thinking about what to say and how to say it. That's what Ecclesiastes was talking about, the arranging of the words. That's how to say it. Right? What's the right answer? Now how do I arrange that? That's a lot of the work of writing. If you've ever written anything and then read it and been like, this is trash. And then you worked on it and you were like, still trash, but better trash. And then you asked somebody else to read the thing and they edit it for you, you handed it back, you're like, this is better and I hate you. Right? That's the editing process. That's getting counsel in written form. Arranging words is a very important part of helping to make those words be accepted and understood. That's a part of the thinking about it. Verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. So back at verse 25, you know, the proud, God destroys the house of the proud. Well, God's also far away from the wicked. The idea here is God is inaccessible to the wicked. He's deaf to their pleas. And he brings destruction to them. Well, the widow, the righteous, God establishes the boundary of the widow. He hears the plea of the righteous. God is accessible. There's an availability of his favor. He gives his ear to the plea. He favors internally, and he answers favorably. These are the things that God does for the righteous and for his people even in the face of oppression. So having looked at all of this, we see all the benefits of, jo- of wisdom. We see the w- that there's joy that comes out of wisdom. And there's, there's benefits to counsel and talking to parents and, and, and going through and studying the word of God and studying the words that are pulled together by the scholars of the church. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, what do you find joy in? We said at the beginning, the fool finds joy in folly. But we have received all of this instruction that we should find joy in wisdom. We see all these benefits of wisdom, and wisdom is better than all those benefits. And so, all the things we want to get by other means are best obtained by wisdom. And so, do you find folly to be a joy? We all have folly that we enjoy to some extent. Right? That's the sinfulness that still dwells in us. Do we see this as bad and to be changed, or do we lie to ourselves that the Bible condemns these things, but it really doesn't understand? My parents just don't understand, and the Bible just doesn't understand. And so as a result, what needs to happen is, everybody needs to give me space for me to enjoy this sin to a reasonable degree. If we neglect thought and refuse to sit and reflect on our conduct and pleasures, if we avoid the consideration of we ought to find pleasure in, then we will find ourselves having increasing enslavement to folly. If we resist the discipline and pain caused by sin and resist the call to stop and think from that suffering and from the word preached, then we will find ourselves becoming increasingly hypocritical or we will praise folly and deny the truth of God with our very lips in order to suppress the truth and hold the folly we love. When we find that our thoughts are an abomination to the Lord, there is no hiding of our true beliefs from God. God sees our mind. Our thoughts are open before Him as a book. We must repent of our love of other things. We must hate the things that separate us from God. We must hate the things that stop us from thinking, the things that stop us from thinking of our true good, the things that stop us from thinking of our highest and best use of our time, the things that stop us from thinking how to grow in lasting joy rather than hoarding the passing pleasures of sin. You have a duty as a rational creature to study, to know the ways that are pure to God. Those ways are the ways of joy to parent and to child alike. Those ways are the ways of joy without mixture. Never has man been so joyous as in the light of God's truth and, thought, word, and deed. indeed. There is a great joy even in this life in knowing and using the pure words. We all have points of folly that we enjoy. We all must repent of the foolish joys we take in sin and chase instead after the deep and fulfilling joys of righteousness. The longer we wait, the more we will find that the stupid joys of sin are replaced with a cruel and grasping enslavement. I assume all of you have seen The Lord of the Rings. Golem is an excellent character written for the purpose of allowing preachers to point to an example of sin. Right? So Golem loves the one ring. If you let yourself look in secret at your sin, and to think of it as precious to you, you will find that over time you become more and more like Gullum, alone, in the dark, miserable, poorly clothed, in love with your precious sin. We must all repent of our false beliefs. We must all take up truth and put down lies. We cannot do this apart from the work of the Spirit. We must believe that we need forgiveness and a righteousness that is not our own. We must believe that Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. We must believe that we have been saved from both the guilt of sin and the power of sin, and then we must seek to put off the old man and put on the new man. We must root out the lies in our own hearts. We must think rightly. We must study how to answer our own doubts as they arise, study to fight our own sin as we battle the internal challenges that arise from our own evil thoughts and desires, then we will find that we often have a fit answer to give to external challenges as they arise. We will have an answer, a word to speak in due season. Oh, how good that will be. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Grover? Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Uh, A quick question regarding verse 1 uh, He who is greedy for gain from his own house, he who hates drive to thrived will live. Uh, 10a, turning 3, the disorder of desire, desire for gain without concern for lawfulness. Is this the context in which uh, that is given? To gain here this is also related to the short discussion that we had earlier today uh, we'll probably talk about more about this later in the, the fellowship game but uh, the context for a gain that is that goes against God's law is that one that is one that is not concerned for God's law lawlessness? yeah so if you desire gain, that's not sin by itself. Desiring gain without concern for the means, right? desiring gain without concern for the law of God, without concern for the interests of others, that is greed. Right? So if you are desirous to take something unlawfully, if you're desirous to make the money without regard for the harms it would cause to other people, that's, that's greed. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would build us up in the knowledge of you, that you would cause us to chase after wisdom, to seek counsel from each other, to encourage discussion, that you would help us to be careful to hear the counsel of those who are wise, that you would help us to, uh, as parents, lead our children well, as husbands, lead our wives well, that children would be concerned to hear the counsel of their parents, and that Spouses would be concerned to seek each other's counsel. I ask that you would help our church court to be rule with wisdom under Christ. I ask that you'd help all of us to find words that are worthy of our contemplation, that we would look first and foremost to the Scriptures, and that we would be blessed by looking at the work of our fathers in the faith, that we would see uh, what has been done by the Westminster Assembly and that we would consider carefully the pulling together of the Scripture truths there. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.